Hey, happy Friday, everybody. Welcome back to the Friends with Employee Benefits podcast. Today's episode is focused on this idea that we're calling move to value, and we're going to explain that. Uh, And to help explain that, I've asked my colleague, Jeff Hogan, from the Rogers Benefits Group to help me tackle this topic. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for being on. And I want to dive right in because this is a really meaty topic. So let's just let's just go right into it. And why don't we start at the sixty thousand foot level and sort of work down from there? So it, I don't I don't know if there's a way to do this, but can you give us a a high level two two or three sentence definition of what we mean when we say move to value in healthcare? Sure, sure, ab- absolutely. So the whole idea of moving to value actually came out of a 2006 book and research from Harvard professor Michael Porter, which was called Redefining Healthcare. It was based on 10 years of research looking at the healthcare industry and its dysfunction, basically. If we look at healthcare right now, almost 20% of our gross domestic product is devoted to or consumed by healthcare which is nearly double any other civilized country in the world. And the book really focused on how or why the healthcare industry doesn't comport to the same competitive forces that other industries do. And and really the focus for moving to value means changing or organizing the healthcare delivery system to improve patient outcomes for patients, basically. Better quality, lower cost, pay providers or doctors um, for doing better, for having better outcomes, accountability. That's really what moving to value is about. Accountability in a word? Yes, uh, yeah. accountability. So, so if we think about it, um, the battle for those that are moving to value, and we'll get into who's battling and who's not, and who's blocking, and um, there, there are a lot of uh, things to discuss here. Um, but the, uh, the move to value is really getting the right service at the right location at the right cost, linked and informed by data. Sounds really intuitive, but our system is built on what we call volume, fee for service. Go to whomever you please, regardless of whether they're good or not, and those folks will charge you um, ad nauseum, regardless of what the cost or quality happens to be. And in most cases, it's very expensive. If we look at the state of Connecticut, for example, uh, we only have about 3.4 million people here, but we're still predominantly a fee-for-service reimbursed uh, state. Very expensive, very little transparency. Many of the uh, hospital systems, the bigger hospital systems in the state charge anywhere from 200 to 700% of Medicare. Um, for uh, reimbursement. And there really isn't a tremendous amount of accountability. How are the outcomes? When you had that knee surgery, um, did you end up paying more for the infection that came from the, from the knee uh, surgery uh, than the knee surgery itself? And how do we know that? How do we know about the quality of our facilities? Um, there's been a certain opacity in our system over the years where it's been really hard for people to discern cost and quality and who's good and who's not good. I, in college, my, uh, I had a dual major 
intellectual history and economics. First sounds really boring. The second is perhaps even more boring. But I, uh, the metaphor that I use is that the American healthcare system is much like pre-French Revolution France. The Ancien regime, the entrenched baronries uh, that were protected interests at, at all costs uh, in landed uh, gentry. And, and unfortunately, that's part of our program. And that's uh, really what uh, the move to value is, is trying to get away from, giving purchasers the opportunity to get accountability for their members and to improve quality and outcomes. Well, what was the advent of this uh, value movement then, Jeff? So, you know, what was it, um, you know, there have been centers of excellence around for a long time, uh, for as long as I can remember, actually, for things like transplants and maybe high-cost cancer treatments and, and other maybe traditionally high-cost medical episodes. But so was is that center of, of excellence type of model, is that a form of value or, or, or not? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. So, um, so how about I not answer that question and I'll answer another question first and then answer that question. How does <laughs> okay. that work? You know, so perfect, ha- yeah. having a history in politics, that's what we do. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, we answer the question we want to answer first. And then we answer your question. So uh, curiously, and almost oxymoronically, um, the first innovator in this space, in this value-based healthcare space, um, was CMS, Medicare. Curiously, if you think about it, Medicare and Medicaid consume a huge part uh, of the federal budget. And um, for many years, uh, Medicare has looked for ways for controlling costs and things of this nature. So uh, CMS started some experiments um, with provider groups in our areas and other areas of the country to say, hey, um, let's, let's try some of these attribution models. And the terms that are used um, without getting into vernacular too deeply, upside downside risk. Take some upside risk. And what that means is that these provider groups, these doctors, these doctor groups would in fact um, uh, adopt a risk structure where they were attributed members um, and they would have to take care of those people. And uh, um, their outcomes would depend upon whether or not uh, the provider groups got additional reimbursements or not. So this was, these were the first attribution models that came out. And in fact, even in our area, um, we've had a great relationship over the years with uh, ProHealth Physicians, um, which is now owned by Optum Healthcare. Uh, but ProHealth was one of the, the first groups in the state of Connecticut um, to work on the medical home model, which means mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they're working in your home. That means that you as a member are attributed to a primary care physician who kind of owns you, who coordinates your care, who does your you know, preventative diagnostic, who really has a good sense of who you are, what you need, and can follow um, your disease process and uh, uh, appropriately coordinate your care with specialists and things of this nature. So, so um, this you know, started with CMS. Uh, and I hate to say the government was an innovator at anything. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, I'm pretty libertarian in these areas, but they really did a nice job in, in starting to pave that pass path toward value-based healthcare. Even um, another kind of acronym is VBID, value-based insurance design, 
um, was, was brought into uh, purchasers or employers to encourage them in their plans to incent the use of high value services and to disincent the value of low value services. So a critical aspect of any of this value movement, and it's something that we'll discuss today as well, um, is the importance of the primary care physician. So the medical home model was one of the first that came out. Um, it, it has advanced to a new model called advanced primary care, um, which we'll talk about and certainly has an effect in import coming out of COVID um, as well, where an attributed primary care physician coordinates all of your care and steers you to the appropriate specialists or centers of excellence. So to your, uh, to your point, this whole notion of centers of excellence has been around for a long time, uh, but it hasn't had much import, meaning we can call any, anyone and anything a center of excellence for obesity or musculoskeletal or cardiometabolic or cancer, but there must be data to substantiate your outcome. So I'll give an example. Here in uh, Connecticut, out of St. Francis Hospital, uh, Connecticut Joint Replacement Institute operates as a musculoskeletal center of excellence. And they actually have data to substantiate their outcomes. If you have a joint replacement surgery there, which I did about a year ago, by the way, um, I was able to find out um, uh, the specific providers and what their quality metrics were and what their, uh, their outcomes were, meaning patient outcomes. Uh, was that person a year later able to get down and do some push-ups and you know, things of this nature? More importantly, the whole notion of center of excellence has grown into what we call episodes of care. And um, that is a project that the state of Connecticut has been working on. And we'll talk about that some more. Um, but COE is an aspect, an important aspect of value-based healthcare. Uh, it wasn't a leading aspect of value-based healthcare though. So CMS, uh, as it relates to Medicare and Medicaid, started experimenting with this, this medical home uh, um, sort of attribution model uh, about about when about when did that happen, Jeff? And then <clears throat> and then a follow up question to that would be how and then we got accountable care organizations. I think sort of as a result of ACA, uh, right? So was that the the evolution to go from patient centered medical homes to accountable care organizations, or are they or are, are they kind of the same? Do they coexist? Talk about that for a great, little bit. Great. Great question. So, so part of these, um, over the last decade, the CMS experiments have involved a whole number of things. So patient-centered medical home was an aspect of this program, and a, accountable care organizations were uh, designed really for provider groups. And think about it, it's not just um, primary care physician groups, but uh, multi-specialty groups. Um, as well were organized into accountable care organizations. Um, it was much easier on the CMS side to drive metrics and uniformity on valuing outcomes and quality and things of this nature um, than it was in the transition of the use of ACOs on the commercial side. So what is the commercial marketplace? Anywhere that healthcare is purchased by employers. Um, so once the payers got involved, you know, the, uh, the national health plans, 
they adopted their own metrics for uh, accountable care organizations. And herein lies the problem. You know, um, we've got multiple pairs with their own criterion um, for accountable care. So one payer may say, okay, provider group, you have to act and perform this way and show us this type of data. Um, and this is how we're going to value your outcomes. And another one would have completely different ones. And curiously, you know, there's been a fair amount of what I would call dysfunction and defect in these models uh, because each payer wants to have their own thing. You know, it's their brand and the way they operate and their contracts and what have you. The biggest problem though comes down to the first thing you said to me or asked about Jeff at the beginning when we started to talk about this was one word, accountability, accountability. is a critical aspect of moving to value. And think about it, most purchasers, most employers, they get data and reporting and uh, you as an advisor and consultant, you review this data and you say, all right, um, the three biggest programmatic problems in your group are cancer, cardiometabolic, MSK. That's pretty much a consistent across the board. And maybe specialty drugs, you know, probably not maybe, uh, likely in every group that that's the case. But the problem lies, uh, uh, lies in laying out a path or a tactical path to solve for those problems. So let's say it's cancer or let's say it's MSK that are you know, the, the top one and two in a particular group, often we'll find, particularly in Connecticut and uh, the surrounding areas, that uh, people get um, go to the wrong places for cancer treatment. So uh, they have poor outcomes, it costs too much, um, and maybe that's 30% of their claims are for cancer. Maybe it should be 10% uh, if they were directed to the right facilities and things of this nature. Purchasers have the same, and advisors have the same problems that providers have in that they don't get adequate data from payers on their performance, or it's too late. Um, but they're paid on that, meaning in these accountable care organizations. So, so that has become... Uh, a complex uh, externality of moving to value um, in the commercial marketplace, that the data is inadequate uh, and in many cases inappropriate, not only for the purchaser to come up with solutions, value-based solutions, attribution solutions, but it's also inadequate for many of the provider groups because they don't get enough information or it doesn't tell them what they're doing well and in uh, what they're not doing well. And think about it, if, if, you, um, if we were to uh, have a capstone conversation, we were to end it right here, what does moving to value mean um, uh, for me? It means putting the purchaser and the best providers together synchronistically, you know, solving one another's problems and managing the risk appropriately of the population. Other folks that are involved in the process, vendors and uh, payers often get in the way of that relationship and interpret it inappropriately. In the best situations are those where we have a purchaser aligned with the right providers with the right risk arrangement, meaning upside downside risk. So Jeff, you go and get your knee replaced. Um, the uh, 
that knee replacement has an episodic cost. This is where I'll transition into your COE, warrantied episodes of care and say, all right, here's the targeted price, 20 grand all in, no matter what, including any outcomes. So if you get that infection or have a complication, it's on the provider, meaning the purchaser doesn't pay for it because you have aligned appropriately the risk arrangements um, mm. for that employer specifically. So the, the ACO model is still um, out there and fairly significant throughout uh, New England. Um, if we go up into Massachusetts, where total cost of care is even more expensive than uh, Connecticut. In fact, uh, in Massachusetts, we will see a 4X, 4X differential in total cost of care between uh, the predominant um, provider organization and the most um, uh, value-oriented or efficient organization in Massachusetts, 4X total cost of care. So four times for the, uh, <clears throat> just for the folks like me who are uh, a little <laughs> slow this morning, right? It sounds like what you were saying is the ACO model is almost becoming sort of obsolete and ineffective before it even got a chance to, at least in, in our market, in the Connecticut and New England market, really take hold. And, and what I be, correct me if I'm wrong, because <clears throat> it seems to me that in this market, the the payers or the the insurance companies the carriers were really slow to to organize around and productize if that's a word around an aco model um and and deliver product to employers that were really effectively managing costs based around the aco is that a fair sort of observation of my part or 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 no Entirely fair. So I call, um, I, I fondly uh, call Connecticut um, the land of molasses. Um, it, uh, in, in an, I've even um, kind of refined that uh, with a suggestion from someone in the uh, healthcare ecosystem to call it the land of frozen molasses uh, mm -hmm. at, at times. And if you think about it, um, uh, Connecticut is a fairly small commercial market um, in relation to others uh, around us. And uh, we have a lot of health plans or pairs that are located here. And um, fee-for-service has been um, the way to go. Uh, employers get their 20% increases or 25% increases every year. Fee-for-service is, um, you know, like an amoeba. It just keeps growing and growing and growing uncontrolled and what have you. And it's also very profitable to all the players that are involved in the process. So um, whereas um, Medicare Accountable Care um, had uh, a stronghold here in Connecticut, why? Because the payers are here and it was uh, Medicare Advantage was a great way to learn about you know moving into this space um connecticut has been really slow on innovating toward value we've seen some huge changes in the last couple of years positive changes in the last couple of years um, actually the state of connecticut um, is the largest purchaser in the state of connecticut and they've been part of our um a very important part of our moving to value uh group and they're doing some interesting and innovative things that i think 
will eclipse um, the ACO model uh, from a useful or utility point of view uh, for employers because, again, of the different ways that the ACO model is interpreted and, and used and uh, what have you. But yes, in fact, um, the, the payer market has been s slow. We're, we're seeing um, some signs of life, some significant signs of life uh, in the marketplace in, in Connecticut specifically uh, now from the payers. Yeah, I mean, the, the, many of the carriers in the state now ha do have product finally built around, uh, you know, a, a high-performing network or, or whatever their ACO strategy is. And as you said, it, no two are really the same. Maybe that's one of the problems with that. But just as they start to really mobilize around that, it seems like we've already entered, like, the, like we, maybe pushed by the state um, and a handful of providers that were kind of moving along in the evolution and leaving the the ACO or just medical home strategy behind and and getting into things like uh, you started to talk about the already the bundled episodic payments and so talk about this this evolution then Jeff so where are we going where where are we going today now we're we're sort of moving sounds like we're moving past ACO we're moving on um, and and part of that is episodic bundle payments. What, what else, and talk about that for in depth a little bit more, and then what else, what else is, is happening in this evolution? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, Jeff. So, um, you know, I, uh, I'm really honored to have the opportunity to talk uh, with you, one digital organization, because you've always kind of been at the forefront, of a lot of the innovation that we've had in the state. I can remember 10 years ago where most employers were, were buying fully insured plans with no transparency and what have you, and having conversation with leadership um, at One Digital to say, hey, look, you know, we need to show purchasers, employers a better path. And what is that path? Um, and I promise I'm, I'm leading to your, your answer here. And that better path was trying to get the attention of C-suite um, in every employer group to say, hey, look, stop paying for fully insured plans that don't give you any data or transparency or don't tell you what your own inherent problems are inside of your group. Again, cancer, cardiometabolic, um, what, whatever it happens to be, you have no idea what your problems are. How are we going to solve or con control your costs unless we do that? And oh yeah, by the way, you're, you're financing your plans on a platform that doesn't allow you to have equity or participate in savings if in fact you do solve your problems. So, you know, um, my friends at One Digital were some of the first who worked with me on this transparency initiative uh, to move over to level funded group uh, uh, platforms, you know, where we um, would actually finance that health plan much more efficiently and transparently, and we could say, hey, look, 70% of your group doesn't have a primary care physician. And because of that, we know that we're gonna have big catastrophic claims that we're gonna have to deal with because it's, they're, they're just going to become large problems if we don't have that attribution. That was the beginning of the value-based healthcare movement for me in, in Connecticut. And we've been able to move you know, large populations of employer groups 
onto these platforms so that they could share in savings and we could see what the problems are. The next evolution of that is what you're talking about here. So about two years ago, um, a group in Connecticut, and I'm, I'm one of the um, founders of that group called the Moving to Value Alliance. Um, that's hospital systems and provider groups and Fortune 500 companies in the state of Connecticut and advisors like uh, One Digital are part of this group. And we, we ran our, uh, our national forum in Hartford and we brought in all kinds of folks from around the country that have already moved to value um, kind of to impose some guilt on the rest of the healthcare system in uh, Connecticut. And prior to that session, we went out to every payer in the state and said, okay, tell us about your center of excellence programs and how you steer people with um, cancer and cardiometabolic problems and MSK into these programs. And it was kind of an embarrassing response uh, that we got from the statewide um, payers. And, uh, Tom Woodruff, who runs the State of Connecticut Health Plan for the Comptroller's Office, has been part of our group and a real visionary uh, with the State of Connecticut. Um, he decided coming out of that event, uh, literally, that it was time to do something different. In, uh, in March uh, of last year, went out to bid um, for contracts for the State of Connecticut Health Plan, which is roughly 189,000 active and retired employees, including the partnership program, and went out for a vendor who, and the vendor who won, it's called Signify Health, uh, they were called Remedy before, and they're in the midst of a huge project. You know, this is the transition from ACO into episodes of care. And literally, the belief is that 50% plus of healthcare costs can be covered by episodes of care. So let me explain it really simple. Um, if you have a knee surgery, having a targeted price for that knee surgery all in, regardless of uh, the outcomes or the infections or what have you, with a quality component associated with it, cost and quality. Again, back to what, you know, what we talked about before, improve the patient experience, improve the health population, reduce the cost of care, the triple aim which is value-based healthcare. And uh, so Signify, along with Anthem, who has shown great vision in this space, is working together on the State of Connecticut Health Plan with provider groups across the state for MSK, for cardiometabolic, um, for cancer, to come up with targeted price, warranted episodes of care on the big things that are inside of employers' health plans those big costs, you know, in creating on tier one, an advanced primary care steerage mechanism. And what does that mean? That employees would be attributed to an advanced primary care physician who kind of owns their care, um, who sends them to the correct episodes of care, those centers of excellence who have a cost and a quality dimension to them. And the intent is to extend this to things like maternity, you know, uh, uh, vaginal delivery and C-sections and hysterectomies and things that have had many complications in the past to align all of these things together. And curiously, on a parallel path with this process, um, we've been working with the state of Connecticut um, 
uh, the Office of Health Strategy to reinvigorate another program so that employers and advisors like you uh, could find data on cost and quality for hospitals and providers yourself. Um, most other states um, have what we call all payers claims databases. And unfortunately, the one in Connecticut has languished for years and been non-functional. Um, Vicki Veltri, the state of Connecticut, um, uh, really uh, got this thing going again. In working with Vicki, um, we've been able to get state of Connecticut data, uh, state of Connecticut health plan, uh, the BUCA um, payer fully insured data, um, Medicaid data has is now in the all payers claims database and um, working with, we worked with um, the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchasers to get that data into the upcoming RAND National Hospital Transparency Report. It was supposed to be out in March, COVID kind of slowed things down. It'll be out in September. So that'll be the first time that you as an advisor in employer groups in Connecticut can literally see what they're paying at individual facilities. You know, is it three or six or 700% of Medicare? What are the quality aspects of it? To again, tie all this stuff that to data uh, so that it becomes much more actionable. So all the pieces are starting to come together. The intent is that the state of Connecticut um, will allow these episodes of care um, to be used in the commercial marketplaces. Um, and uh, in fact, I, I have a upcoming series of webinars with Signify to discuss exactly how this will be deployed uh, to the commercial marketplace. So Jeff, think about it. For those groups that are self-funded, that purchase stop loss uh, for their catastrophic risks, mm -hmm. what's more important than predictability? You know, so instead of getting a $25,000 knee surgery that becomes $150,000 knee surgery because of an infection or a complication, if you pay $25,000, it becomes very predictable. And for the employers that have moved into self-funding, this is a critical value-based uh, thing. So advanced yeah. care coupled and steering to uh, warranted episodes of care. This is true innovation. I just want to kind of, I think to kind of put it in a bundle or, or pack, package it up nice. I mean, the idea is that you're going from this fee-for-service model, discounted fee-for-service, where the, the, the provider is billing some arbitrary build amount, and then the, the carriers have a, a discount off of that, that they negotiated, and they still end up paying, I think you said somewhere between two, two to 700% of what Medicare would pay for the same thing, right? And then if there are complications, if there's post-surgical or, or, or readmissions to the hospital or infections, as you noted, it's just more care that's, that's, that's more money, right? And the episodic bundled payment is to say, I think what you're saying is it's one, it's one lump sum payment provided to a group of providers who have come together to say, look, we're going to use evidence-based medicine and the data to figure out how to do this and do it right and do it right the first time and eliminate waste. And, and the payer, whoever that is, whether it's a self-funded plan or if it's the, the carrier in a fully insured world would be, would be not on the hook for anything more than that guaranteed or what you're calling a warranty 
price. Is that that the well, gist of it? Yeah, well said. Well said. And you know, so so part of the problem here has been in the past, uh, fee for service has been easy and profitable for all the players, whether it was a provider or a payer or um, you know, I'll um, uh, I'll implicate everyone here. Uh, brokers and consultants uh, have liked uh, fee for service in the past. Um, that's why I like to work with innovative folks, you know, like the one digital folks who say, "Hey, look, we're partners in this." I realize coming out of COVID that you can't afford a 20% increase. We need to have accountability. We want to send your people to the best people and make it accountable and have tactics that affect your bottom line so that you can pay people wages to come back to work instead of having uh, huge increases. Value-based healthcare is more important now than it was pre-COVID, much more valuable um, uh, than it was uh, before simply because of all the externalities um, that we have to deal with. One of the problems though, um, one of the unintended consequences of COVID is that many of the provider organizations that have moved to value-based arrangements and attribution who are really good um, have been starving since mid-March. They had to shut down their practices and you know, haven't had the revenue coming in and things of this nature. So it's something that we're having to deal with is uh, not have big hospital systems buy up these, uh, you know, these great provider groups that had moved at risk and wanted this accountability uh, to move back into fee-for-service arrangements. So, mm -hmm. so part of this is incenting provider groups to want to go at risk as well. And this is why this data is critical because under the ACO arrangement, um, many of these groups just weren't getting actionable data on their own performance. You know, under this type of scenario with episodes of care, we have really good data, you know, and you're going to get really good feedback on, hey, there's three people in your MSK group who aren't performing. Uh, you, better, you better get there because you're at risk. You know, uh, it's the accountability that hasn't been part of American healthcare for a very, very long time. It requires yeah. all the parties to be partners, meaning the purchaser, the broker and the consultant and the advisor, the stop loss carrier, and whomever is you know, doing these episodes um, uh, as well, or the providers. In, yeah, inherent in this conversation, I, I think is, is the fact that you know a lot of people think that you know the idea that you get what you pay for applies to to everything and that you know uh, great healthcare has to be really expensive, right? But I think the opposite. What we're saying is the opposite is really true here. That if you do it right and you're delivering a really great outcome and you've eliminated the waste and you've eliminated that you know the the never care, the things that never should should happen, the the surgical infections and readmissions and all that that the better outcomes actually cost less correct perfect well said and and that's absolutely unequivocally the case that um, those providers that you know focus on quality um, obviously they have better outcomes but the cost is less and uh, who who pro who proved this out so Ruth Coleman who um, did uh, was really the TPA for Walmart. Um, Walmart has has been really a leader in this space. They have 1.1 million people on on their plan, and they went out uh, on MSK. MSK is much easier to do episodic 
centers of excellent episodic um, uh, bundles on why, because you know, cancer is tough. You know, uh, being a cancer survivor, I'll tell you, there's all kinds of strange cancers and a facility may be really good at uh, breast cancer or prostate cancer and not good at something else, you know. Uh, um, so all these quote unquote uh, cancer centers of excellence might not cover, you know, many of the different types of cancers. It's, it's a very discerning area, even cardiometabolic to some degree. But MSK typically, you know, um, my, my friend, Dr. Steven Schutzer, who runs CGRI, will tell you um, they're sterile carpenters. You know, uh, uh, it's, it's a procedure. And uh, they know from their data what those outcomes should be. And they study uh, best practices and have really good data. And they know the price points and where it should be and uh, where people should go. But still, uh, we have employees in our groups. They talk to their neighbor. Hey, where'd you have your knee replaced? at um, you know, XYZ Hospital uh, with this doctor who did three knee replacements last year. I know when I had prostate cancer, I wanted the doctor who did 2000 you know, uh, prostate procedures. And I want to know the quality and the outcomes. Why? Uh, be because it was a big deal. And, uh, uh, but most people have been um, kept away from that data about centers of excellence and what have you. Really the move to value is about creating some consumerism. Consumerism has not existed in healthcare for years. Why? Because the entity that buys healthcare is the employer. It's not the consumer, you know? Uh, so this changes things up um, by, by bringing a relationship together between all the parties that are involved in managing that plan. Jeff, I, 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 uh, we're probably running a little low on time. I want to be mindful of your time. And, and, but, and I do want to uh, talk about pharmacy. You referenced pharmacy and, and, um, and specialty meds earlier, and we, uh, I want to get to that. But you also talked about a Walmart or a state of Connecticut, right? And, you know, when you're a really big purchaser or employer and uh, you, you can kind of go out and do your own direct contracting and we know that this is happening and you can kind of go out and, or hire somebody to go out and negotiate these bundled payments uh, around centers of excellence uh, on your behalf because you've got that purchasing power. To me, the challenge is uh, how does the smaller employer though start leveraging and, and benefiting from these kinds of arrangements. You know, and, and that's where I get concerned because, you know, the, the payers, the carriers in the market were so slow to operationalize around ACOs and medical homes. And, and my concern is that they're going to be similarly slow to operationalize around uh, episodic bundle payments and centers of excellence um, at a deeper level for small, for smaller employers that don't, that can't really go out and do the direct contracting. Uh, um, so what do you think about that? So in, in order to get to the episodes, uh, you need to have attribution on the front side. So uh, shamefully, Connecticut uh, is the state with the lowest total cost of care expenditure for primary care in the country. Uh, 3.5% total cost of care. And uh, actually the, the um, the president of Anthem for Connecticut was part of a task force last year um, that uh, came out with uh, Jill, Jill Hummel's been a leader, yeah. by the way, in uh, value-based healthcare. And um, 
uh, came out with a report that that demonstrated this woeful uh, underinvestment in advanced uh, primary care. And you know, I blame that a lot on advisors. Uh, I blame it on a lot of people for for really not um, talking about the importance of advanced primary care. People think that means gated plans and things of this nature. You know, we have tremendous uh, primary care organizations in Connecticut who will take risk um, on providers and really uh, attributing advanced primary care is a critical first step for a small group of five employees or a large group of 10,000 employees. Those that uh, create incentives to utilize advanced primary care have uh, the best outcomes, the least convexity, in their catastrophic claims and things of this nature. So it really start. So that's that's where it starts. And and I know for a fact with um, our our one digital friends that we've been stressing the value of primary care for a long time, even in plan design and requiring an annual physical or whatever to create that attribution. There are other things though that you can do to do that. And uh, so since COVID, you know what happened in mid March. A lot of these provider organizations, they shuttered their practices. Uh, you know, the hospitals were treating COVID, and uh, here, here we had members and employees hiding in their houses to stay away from it. And they didn't have, you know, uh, many of these provider practices didn't have good virtual um, uh, interfaces set up. And unfortunately, employees had to use transactional telemed, uh, where they were calling a doctor who didn't know them, didn't have their EHR in front of them and say, hey, I hope you're okay. What do you need? You know, this, this sort of thing. So what's come out of COVID are uh, virtual, longitudinal, advanced primary care opportunities uh, for employers where you don't even need to have a physical uh, physically located advanced primary care, you could use a virtual primary care physician who can do most of your stuff and then ties you back to a physical location for those things that need to get done. The, the problem was with uh, COVID, you know, even if your primary care physician had the ability to interface with you online, they couldn't uh, talk to your cardiologist or your whatever, uh, your firm D and coordinate the care. Um, in uh, an advanced primary care physician group in a, a physical presence has the ability to do that. Interoperably, they can coordinate your EMR and EHR, coordinate care and things of this nature. The advanced primary care thing is really important for the smallest employer. That's the first big step that will have a, a, dynam a, a dynamic, uh, how's that for a word? Uh, I love that. <laughs> uh, um, uh, impact on your on your case first year and likely mitigate the catastrophic claims. Advanced primary care physicians steer to episodes of care and that's the next step. And those will be available to the smallest employer and they are to some right now, to mid-market groups and to larger uh, groups as well. And Signify is a really good company to doing the State of Connecticut project. We've worked with another company called Carum Health out of the Bay area mostly doing MSK, some cancer, some obesity right now. Um, but these are becoming available to employers. Here's what employers have to do, and that is take agency. C-suite has traditionally um, foisted the responsibility for purchasing healthcare on the HR department. 
guess what? This is the second largest expenditure you make. You want to turn your benefit plan into a performing asset rather than a liability. You have to take agency, meaning skin in the game and being part of this process. And uh, everybody can do it. And I hope we get to specialty drugs, Jeff, because I do want to talk about that. Yeah, uh, but I think that was a great, great answer, which is, you know, in a nutshell, it, it's it, if through the advanced primary care that we can get the steerage to the centers of excellence and those episodic uh, uh, bundled payments. Um, so, yeah, so let's go ahead and transition and take a couple of minutes to talk about pharmacy. Uh, how does it factor into this, Jeff? And not necessarily from the PBM standpoint, although you can talk about that if you would like, but also I think we need to talk about uh, the, the the skyrocketing cost of medical pharmacy as well. Um, what we what our brethren might refer to as those J code drugs that get billed through the medical plan uh, and, and not through the 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 the, PB, the pharmacy plan. So, how does this all factor in? We we've been very very focused on pharmacy for about the last eight years. Why? You know, if uh, if you're a good advisor and you guys are really good advisors. You're taking a look at the variables of the plan uh, that have um, that have multiples. Meaning, uh, we talked about cancer and cardiometabolic and all this sort of thing. Um, meaning, the uh, inflation driver in the plans are the things that we get really uh, concerned about. And uh, the inflationary aspect of pharmacy has just been extraordinary, particularly on the specialty side. So. We see lots of payers buying PBMs and you know um, uh, working on trend factors and uh, really trying to ratchet down some costs on the PBM side. And a lot of good brokers have um, you know worked with their employer groups on pass-through PBMs and things of this nature. In fact, the state of Connecticut went to a pass-through model uh, a little over a year ago to get accountability on these costs as well. But what we're finding, and this is where I've spent the last two years really focused, is that specialty medicine, uh, specialty medications on the med pharmacy side that are billed by the hospitals are huge drivers of cost in every plan. So J codes are part of it, um, you know, that, that falls into that category. But for lay persons really trying to consider this whole thing, I'm gonna use a couple of examples from the last couple of weeks. So we were looking at a renewal um, on a group of only about 500 employees and um, a 35 year old woman, and this is in current time, this is in COVID time, by the way, um, was going through chemo at a large hospital system that you would recognize and um, showed up on the renewal report um, for uh, chemo. And by the way, this woman was still working. Um, she was getting her chemo showed up on the report for $190,000. That's, uh, that's what the chemo was being charged out at and what have you. So we did a little investigation on this and we discovered uh, what the cost of the chemo was and that um, not only was that um, being multiplied by seven uh, on this, but it was being infused at a hospital. So think about it. Right now, your immune system is shot, you're working, uh, you're 35 years old. Do you wanna to go to a hospital to have your chemo infused? Um, do you wanna be exposed to that? So just a little bit of work, we were able to discover you know, the multiples of seven for the cost of that 
drug and uh, we were able to find a, a freestanding facility and actually now um, there are infusion centers that some infusion can actually be done at home that brought that down to about $30,000. That cost from 200 to 30,000. Give you one more example. Um, orphan, orphan drugs. So um, a group that we uh, were working on had the renewal come in. They'd hired an employee over the course of the year who had a child with hemophilia. And um, that uh, the, the carrier was charging out the drug at 1.1 million dollars. Um, doing a little bit of work and investigation with a specialty management firm that we work with, uh, 40 minute phone call, you know, 40 minutes later, we got a call back to learn that that specialty med company could purchase that drug from the manufacturer for $177,000. So this is just to give you a sense of the size and scope of the problem. Um, and uh, there are solutions. Um, uh, ne next week, I'm um, uh, leading an initiative for the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchasers on high-cost claimants. We know, um, a, uh, I'm speaking with Merck and other manufacturers, who are embarrassed that um, providers and facilities are charging out the cost of these infused drugs at 500 or 700 percent of what they're purchasing them for and they're they're paying the cost you know in reputation uh, for these ridiculous charges that go out what are we interested in here we're interested in better patient outcomes a person who's going through cancer doesn't want to expose their immune system to covid or the flu or whatever and their employer is paying for this because of the opacity that has existed in the past around um, medical pharmacy specifically. So you're, you're seeing you, you, a move from this, uh, this opacity be very opaque and, and non-trans to, to more of a transparent world that we're, that we're moving to around pharmacy? Slow. So um, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. Um, um, Optimones ProHealth in Connecticut, but they also own another organization in uh, Central Massachusetts called Reliant Healthcare, which has been around for a long time. They actually started Fallon many years ago, and uh, they're a really neat operating model. Uh, you know, uh, being a uh, healthcare policy geek, uh, I went up and toured uh, their facilities. So they they operate in a medical home model, upside downside risk, even on pharmacy for their primary care physicians. But they mm -hmm. also have um, ambulatory surgical centers, which is by the way, something else that will likely come out of COVID that people don't want to have their knee replacement done in the hospital. They want to go to an ambulatory surgical center, get in and out the same day so that they're not exposed under an episodic arrangement. But an organization like Reliant saw, um, hey, look, if we send you to the hospital, you're going to pay many multiples. They set up freestanding infusion centers um, uh, that employers can contract with directly at a fraction of the cost, uh, increased quality. And think about it again, patient outcomes, patient satisfaction. You know, I want to, if I'm going through this, I want to be treated in my neighborhood and I don't want to have to have a big lift. I already have enough, you know, uh, emotional duress having going through the uh, disease process. And if you remember, you know, what, what did we start with? The, the triple aim, improve patient experience, quality and satisfaction. 
are the provider organizations asking you, how do you like the patient experience? Are you satisfied improving health populations, coordinated care, reducing cost of care? That, that's really what value-based healthcare is about. It's outcome-oriented, not feathering the nests of the entire healthcare ecosystem. It's treating people like human beings with better quality outcomes at a lower cost. I think that's a great sentence to, to end with. Uh, hopefully you agree. And unless there's something that we've missed, anything else that we didn't talk about, Jeff, that uh, you feel that our listeners should hear about? No, we, 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 covered, we covered a lot of ground. What I, what I do want to say is that you don't have to drink from the fire hose to get involved in value-based healthcare. If you're right on the right platform, you have some form of shared savings in your plan you know, retrospective fully insured plans, level funded, self-funded. This allows you to be involved and have equity in the experience and get data. Start with advanced primary care model um, and then uh, move into these other areas. It doesn't have to be all at once, but I will tell you, if you become cognizant of this movement, um, you will reap the rewards, not only for yourself financially, but for the outcomes of your employees and their their well-being and the culture of your organization as well. Well, let's wrap it up. But before I let you go, I, I would ask for one more minute of your time because uh, we always end with some rapid fire questions so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Jeff, are you game for that? Yep. Okay. All right. Real quick. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Favorite band? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. I'm a big Radiohead fan. You threw me on that. I wouldn't yep. have guessed that. If you had one superpower, what would it be? Um, to force people to be more thoughtful before responding. Different, and I love it. If you weren't doing what you do now, Jeff, what would you be doing? Oh, that, that's, uh, that's easy. You ready? Um, mm -hmm. You're, you're going to laugh. I would be an Alaska state trooper, but on the naturalist side. Uh, I'm a big outdoor person, and... Uh, Started my uh, career in, in uh, law enforcement, but uh, love Alaska, and I'd rather be in the woods. Awesome. Lastly, our theme at One Digital this year is being bold. So what does being bold mean to you? Yeah, that's a, I love it. So, uh, so, so being bold is having a vision and driving toward it, even when you fail. Um, so uh, be, being bold is... Um, not only being confident, but making mistakes uh, and getting up and keep running toward that uh, goal. And, and I'd say it certainly applies uh, for this value-based stuff. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Jeff, for joining us today. And to all of you listening, if you like this episode, leave a review. Uh, as always, I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so. If you subscribe, you're going to be the first to know when the next episode drops and, and you don't want to miss any of these upcoming episodes. So thanks for tuning in. This has been yet another episode of Friends with Employee Benefits and HR. Thanks.